Chapter 7, Part 3 of Shirley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mala. Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter 7, Part 3. Tea was a long time in progress. All the guests gabbled as their hostess had expected they would. Mr. Hellstone, being in excellent spirits, when indeed was he ever otherwise in society, attractive female society, it being only with the one lady of his own family that he maintained a grim taciturnity, kept up a brilliant flow of easy prattle with his right-hand and left-hand neighbors, and even with his vis-a-vis Miss Mary, though as Mary was the most sensible, the least coquettish of the three, to her the elderly widower was the least attractive. At heart he could not abide sense in women. He liked to see them as silly, as light-headed, as vain, as open to ridicule as possible, because they were then in reality what he held them to be, and wished them to be, inferior, toys to play with, to amuse a vacant hour, and to be thrown away. Hannah was his favorite. Harriet, though beautiful, egotistical, and self-satisfied, was not quite weak enough for him. She had some genuine self-respect amidst much false pride, and if she did not talk like an oracle, neither would she babble like one crazy. She would not permit herself to be treated quite as a doll, a child, a plaything. She expected to be bent to like a queen. Hannah, on the contrary, demanded no respect, only flattery. If her admirers only told her that she was an angel, she would let them treat her like an idiot. So very credulous and frivolous was she, so very silly did she become when besieged with attention, flattered and admired to the proper degree, that there were moments when Hellstone actually felt tempted to commit matrimony a second time, and to try the experiment of taking her for his second helpmeet. But, fortunately, the salutary recollection of the ennuis of his first marriage, the impression still left on him of the weight of the millstone he had once worn round his neck, the fixity of his feelings respecting the insufferable evils of conjugal existence, operated as a check to his tenderness, suppressed the sigh heaving his old iron lungs, and restrained him from whispering to Hannah proposals it would have been high fun and great satisfaction to her to hear. It is probable she would have married him if he had asked her. Her parents would have quite approved the match. To them, his fifty-five years, his bend-leather heart, could have presented no obstacles, and as he was a rector, held an excellent living, occupied a good house, and was supposed even to have private property, though in that the world was mistaken. Every penny of the five thousand pounds inherited by him from his father had been devoted to the building and endowing of a new church at his native village in Lancashire, for he could show a lordly munificence when he pleased, and if the end was to his liking, never hesitated about making a grand sacrifice to attain it. Her parents, I say, would have delivered Hannah over to his loving kindness and his tender mercies without one scruple. And the second Mrs. Hellstone, inverting the natural order of insect existence, would have fluttered through the honeymoon a bright admired butterfly, and crawled the rest of her days a sordid trampled worm. Little Mr. Sweeting, seated between Mrs. Sykes and Miss Mary, 
both of whom were very kind to him, and having a dish of tarts before him, and marmalade and crumpet upon his plate, looked and felt more content than any monarch. He was fond of all the Mrs. Sykes. They were all fond of him. He thought them magnificent girls, quite proper to mate with one of his inches. If he had a cause of regret at this blissful moment, it was that Miss Dora happened to be absent, Dora being the one whom he secretly hoped one day to call Mrs. David Sweeting, with whom he dreamt of taking stately walks, leading her like an empress through the village of Nunnally. And an empress she would have been, if size could make an empress. She was vast, ponderous. Seen from behind, she had the air of a very stout lady of forty, but withal she possessed a good face, and no unkindly character. The meal at last drew to a close. It would have been over long ago if Mr. Don had not persisted in sitting with his cup half full of cold tea before him, long after the rest had finished, and after he himself had discussed such allowance of viands as he felt competent to swallow, long indeed after signs of impatience had been manifested all round the board, till chairs were pushed back, till the talk flagged, till silence fell. Vainly did Caroline inquire repeatedly if he would have another cup, if he would take a little hot tea, as that must be cold, etc. He would neither drink it nor leave it. He seemed to think that this isolated position of his gave him somehow a certain importance, that it was dignified and stately to be the last, that it was grand to keep all the others waiting. So long did he linger, that the very urn died. It ceased to hiss. At length, however, the old rector himself, who had hitherto been too pleasantly engaged with Hannah to care for the delay, got impatient. "'For whom are we waiting?' he asked. "'For me, I believe,' returned Don, complacently, appearing to think it much to his credit that a party should thus be kept dependent on his movements. "'Tut!' cried Hellstone. Then, standing up, let us return thanks, said he, which he did forthwith, and all quitted the table. Don, nothing abashed, still sat ten minutes quite alone, whereupon Mr. Hellstone rang the bell for the things to be removed. The curate at length saw himself forced to empty his cup, and to relinquish the role which, he thought, had given him such a felicitous distinction, drawn upon him such flattering general notice. And now, in the general course of events, Caroline, knowing how it would be, had opened the piano and produced music-books in readiness. Music was asked for. This was Mr. Sweeting's chance for showing off. He was eager to commence. He undertook, therefore, the arduous task of persuading the young ladies to favor the company with an air, a song. Con amore, he went through the whole business of begging, praying, resisting excuses, explaining away difficulties, and at last succeeded in persuading Miss Harriet to allow herself to be led to the instrument. Then out came the pieces of his flute. He always carried them in his pocket, as unfailingly as he carried his handkerchief. They were screwed and arranged, Malone and Don, meanwhile herding together and sneering at him, which the little man, glancing over his shoulder, saw, but did not heed at all. He was persuaded their sarcasm all arose from envy. They could not accompany the ladies as he could. He was about to enjoy a triumph over them. The triumph began. Malone, much chagrined at hearing him pipe up in most superior style, determined to earn distinction too, if possible, and all at once assuming the character of a swain, 
which character he had endeavoured to enact once or twice before, but in which he had not hitherto met with a success he doubtless opined his merits deserved, approached a sofa on which Miss Helston was seated, and, depositing his great Irish frame near her, tried his hand, or rather his tongue, at a fine speech or two, accompanied by grins, the most extraordinary and incomprehensible. In the course of his efforts to render himself agreeable, he contrived to possess himself of, a, of the two long sofa cushions, and a square one, with which, after rolling them about for some time with strange gestures, he managed to erect a sort of barrier between himself and the object of his attentions. Caroline, quite willing that they should be sundered, soon devised an excuse for stepping over to the opposite side of the room, and taking up a position beside Mrs. Sykes, of which good lady she entreated some instruction in a new stitch in ornamental knitting, a favor readily granted, and thus Peter Augustus was thrown out. Very sullenly did his countenance lower when he saw himself abandoned, left entirely to his own resources on a large sofa, with the charge of three small cushions on his hands. The fact was he felt disposed seriously to cultivate acquaintance with Miss Hullstone, because he thought, in common with others, that her uncle possessed money, and concluded that, since he had no children, he would probably leave it to his niece. Gerard Moore was better instructed on this point. He had seen the neat church that owed its origin to the rector's zeal and cash, and more than once, in his inmost soul, had cursed an expensive caprice which crossed his wishes. The evening seemed long to one person in that room. Caroline, at intervals, dropped her knitting on her lap, and gave herself up to a sort of brain lethargy, closing her eyes and depressing her head, caused by what seemed to her the unmeaning hum around her, the inharmonious, tasteless rattle of the piano keys, the squeaking and gasping notes of the flute, the laughter and mirth of her uncle, and Hannah and Mary. She could not tell whence originating, for she heard nothing comic or gleeful in their discourse, and more than all, by the interminable gossip of Mrs. Sykes murmured close at her ear, gossip which rang the changes on four subjects, her own health and that of the various members of her family, the missionary and Jew-baskets and their contents, the late meeting at Nunnally, and one which was expected to come off next week at Winbury. Tired at length to exhaustion, she embraced the opportunity of Mr. Sweeting coming up to speak to Mrs. Sykes, to slip quietly out of the apartment, and seek a moment's respite and solitude. She repaired to the dining-room, where the dear but now low remnant of a fire still burned in the grate. The place was empty and quiet, glasses and decanters were cleared from the table, the chairs were put back in their places, all was orderly. Caroline sank into her uncle's large easy-chair, half shut her eyes and rested herself, rested at least her limits, her senses, her hearing, her vision, weary with listening to nothing and gazing on vacancy. As to her mind, that flew directly to the hollow. It stood on the threshold of the parlour there, then it passed to the counting-house, and wondered which spot was blessed by the presence of Robert. It so happened that neither locality had that honour, for Robert was a half a mile away from both, and much nearer to Caroline than her deadened spirit suspected. He was at this moment crossing the churchyard, approaching the rectory garden gate, not, however, coming to see his cousin, but intent solely on communicating a brief piece of intelligence to the rector. Yes, Caroline, you hear the wire of the bell vibrate. 
It rings again for the fifth time this afternoon. You start, and you are certain now that this must be of whom you dream. Why you are so certain you cannot explain to yourself, but you know it. You lean forward, listening eagerly as Fanny opens the door. Right. That is the voice, low, with the slight foreign accent, but so sweet as you fancy. You half rise. Fanny will tell him Mr. Hellstone is with company, and then he will go away. Oh, she cannot let him go. In spite of herself, in spite of her reason, she walks half across the room. She stands ready to dart out in case the step should retreat, but he enters the passage. Since your master is engaged, he says, just show me into the dining-room. Bring me pen and ink. I will write a short note and leave it for him. Now, having caught these words and hearing him advance, Caroline, if there was a door within the dining-room, would glide through it and disappear. She feels caught, hemmed in. She dreads her unexpected presence may annoy him. A second since, she would have flown to him. That second past, she would flee from him. She cannot. There is no way of escape. The dining-room has but one door, through which now enters her cousin. The look of troubled surprise she expected to see in his face has appeared there, has shocked her, and is gone. She has stammered a sort of apology. I only left the drawing-room a minute for a little quiet. There was something so diffident and downcast in the air and tone with which she said this, any one might perceive that some saddening change had lately passed over her prospects, and that the faculty of cheerful self-possession had left her. Mr. Moore probably remembered how she had formerly been accustomed to meet him with gentle ardor and hopeful confidence. He must have seen how the check of this morning had operated. Here was an opportunity for carrying out his new system with effect, if he chose to improve it. Perhaps he found it easier to practice that system in broad daylight, in his milliard, amidst busy occupations, than in a quiet parlor, disengaged at the hour of eventide. Fanny lit the candles, which before had stood unlit on the table, brought writing materials, and left the room. Caroline was about to follow her. Moore, to act consistently, should have let her go, whereas he stood in the doorway, and, holding out his hand, gently kept her back. He did not ask her to stay, but he would not let her go. "'Shall I tell my uncle you are here?' asked she, still in the same subdued voice. "'No. I can say to you all I had to say to him. You will be my messenger?' "'Yes, Robert.' "'Then you may just inform him that I have got a clue to the identity of one, at least, of the men who broke my frames, that he belongs to the same gang who attacked Sykes and Pearson's dressing-shop, and that I hope to have him in custody to-morrow. You can remember that?' "'Oh, yes.' These two monosyllables were uttered in a sadder tone than ever, and as she said them she shook her head slightly and sighed. "'Will you prosecute him?' "'Doubtless.' "'No, Robert.' "'And why no, Caroline?' "'Because it will set all the neighborhood against you more than ever.' "'That is no reason why I should not do my duty and defend my property. This fellow is a great scoundrel, and ought to be incapacitated from perpetrating further mischief.' but his accomplices will take revenge on you. You do not know how the people of this country bear malice. It is the boast of some of them that they can keep a stone in their pocket seven years, turn it at the end of that time, keep it seven years longer, and hurl it and hit their mark at last. 
Moore laughed. "'A most pithy vaunt,' said he, "'one that redounds vastly to the credit of your dear Yorkshire friends. "'But don't fear for me, Lena. "'I am on my guard against these lamb-like compatriots of yours. "'Don't make yourself uneasy about me. "'How can I help it? "'You are my cousin. "'If anything happened—' "'She stopped. "'Nothing will happen, Lena. "'To speak in your own language, "'there is a providence above all, is there not?' "'Yes, dear Robert, may he guard you. "'And if prayers have efficacy, yours will benefit me. "'You pray for me sometimes?' "'Not sometimes, Robert. "'You and Lewis and Hortense are always remembered.' "'So I have often imagined. "'It has occurred to me, when weary and vexed, "'I have myself gone to bed like a heathen, "'that another had asked forgiveness for my day, "'and safety for my night. "'I don't suppose such vicarial piety will avail much.' but the petitions come out of a sincere breast from innocent lips. They should be acceptable as Abel's offering, and doubtless would be, if the object deserved them. Annihilate that doubt. It is groundless. When a man has been brought up only to make money, and lives to make it, and for nothing else, and scarcely breathes any other air than that of mills and markets, it seems odd to utter his name in a prayer, or to mix his idea with anything divine, and very strange it seems that a good, pure heart should take him in and harbour him, as if he had any claim to that sort of nest. If I could guide that benignant heart, I believe I should counsel it to exclude one who does not profess to have any higher aim in life than that of patching up his broken fortune and wiping clean from his bourgeois scutcheon the foul stain of bankruptcy. The hint, though conveyed thus tenderly and modestly, as Caroline thought, was felt keenly and comprehended dearly. "'Indeed, I only think, or I will only think, of you as my cousin,' was the quick answer. "'I am beginning to understand things better than I did, Robert, when you first came to England, better than I did a week, a day ago. I know it is your duty to try to get on, and that it won't do for you to be romantic. But in future you must not misunderstand me, if I seem friendly. You misunderstood me this morning, did you not?' "'What made you think so?' "'Your look, your manner. "'But look at me now.' "'Oh, you are different now. "'At present I dare speak to you. "'Yet I am the same, "'except that I have left the tradesman behind me in the hollow. "'Your kinsman alone stands before you. "'My cousin Robert, not Mr. Moore. "'Not a bit of Mr. Moore. "'Caroline, here the company was heard rising in the other room. The door was opened, the pony carriage was ordered, shawls and bonnets were demanded. Mr. Hellstone called for his niece. "'I must go, Robert.' "'Yes, you must go, or they will come in and find us here, and I, rather than meet all that host in the passage, will take my departure through the window. Luckily it opens like a door. "'One minute only. Put down the candle an instant. Good night.' I kiss you because we are cousins, and being cousins, one, two, three kisses are allowable. Caroline, good night. End of chapter seven. Recording by Mala, Parkland, Florida, April two thousand ten.